a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Hey, so glad you could join me today. This is going to be one of the most worthwhile hours of this program that you've heard. So if you're a first-time listener, hey, congratulations. You uh, you dialed in seven uh, cherries in a row. I'm sorry, three cherries in a row. I haven't played a slot machine for a while. Can you tell? Anyway, <laughs> welcome to the program. You hit the jackpot today. Here's what we have on tap. We're going to talk a little bit today about the most destructive addiction overtaking our society. And it may surprise you when you hear what it is. It's something a lot more acceptable than drugs or alcohol or even sex. It's an addiction to outrage. And wait till you uh, hear some examples about why this is the case. Pete Ross, I, I picked this up off of uh, medium.com, and I'll have a link in the show notes, but Pete Ross uh, really spells it out beautifully. And I would just remind you, you know, that uh, you know the first step to recovery is admitting that there is a problem. We're going to spend a little bit of time today talking about uh, the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq. I can't believe it's been 18 years since we had a second go-around in, in Iraq. And, uh, you know, for, for those of you who've known me for a while, um, you probably remember that was a really uncomfortable time. At least it was for me, because I was firmly against the invasion of Iraq, which uh, for a conservative talk show host was, well, for a lot of them, it was the kiss of death. Very uncomfortable place to be. But Caitlin Johnstone has some very valuable perspective from nearly two decades later about why opposing the Iraq war was still the right thing to do. So I'll be sharing some of her thoughts on that. I also have for you one of the most remarkable essays that I have read in a long time. It's long enough. I won't have time to share, but just a few excerpts. But it's from Alan Stevo. And he has been, in my opinion, Alan Stevo has been one of the most effective voices out there leading the, uh, the, the charge to reclaim and to maintain our liberties and to maintain our freedoms, especially in the face of all the COVID shutdowns, the mask mandates, etc. He's very, very principled. I think he takes a very uh, solid, non-confrontational approach in the sense that he's not encouraging people to go out there and get violent or anything. But he has a remarkable essay that reminds us that freedom isn't free, cheap, or easy. In fact, it always comes at a significant sacrifice, which is probably why so few people are really anxious to hear anything about it. If you're one of those people who's willing to hear a little bit more, my hat is off to you. And Alan Stevo has some marvelous ideas about what can happen at the individual level and why every one of us, if we find this a matter of concern, should be exerting ourselves in the cause of freedom. It's a, it's a beautiful essay, and again, I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. And if there's time, we're going to talk about uh, the challenge of getting timely, credible, useful information. Even in the information age, that's a struggle. Truth seekers have their work cut out for them. Well, uh, Jonathan Turley has pulled back the curtain on the flagship of U.S. journalism, yes, the gray lady, the New York Times, and how it has been caught lying about Project Veritas. 
I'm talking, yes, like guilty of defamation in a court of law. Wait till you hear what the New York Times says about, well, this really wasn't our fault. I just had reporters that offered opinions. Yeah, but they were opinions that were false in a story that was supposed to be not opinion, but but an actual journalistic news story. Anyway. That's what's on tap. I want to mention, too, our program is brought to you by Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, by Monticello College, by Pure Light LED light bulbs. This is the next generation of light bulbs, which actually help uh, to clean the area around them. They destroy pathogens. Yeah, I saw your ears perk up at that. We'll have more details coming up. And by HSLAmmo.com. Let's begin, though, with the most destructive addiction overtaking our society. Pete Ross says in 2020, this was written last August, by the way, he says, outrage is the latest drug of society. It's more acceptable than alcohol. It's more addictive than anything you can swallow, smoke, or inject. Because while heroin or methamphetamine are clearly harmful, anger feels so damn righteous. And after all that, After all, he says, that other political party is ruining the world. Their supporters hate America or whatever country you're in. People are too selfish. We're not doing enough for the poor. Women don't have enough rights. Men don't have enough rights. Those people are racist. That group doesn't recognize their privilege. The president is a rapist. Capitalism is exploiting everyone who isn't the 1%. Wow. Yeah, I would say it was accurate then. It's probably even more so now. And he has a quote here from Tim Kreider, which says, Outrage is like a lot of other things that feel good, but over time, devour us from the inside out. And it's even more insidious than most vices because we don't even consciously acknowledge that it's a pleasure. Now, Pete Ross says, We love being angry because it makes us feel smart. Oh, think about your latest social media post, or perhaps ones you've seen. It makes us feel like we care more than the next person, who we assure ourselves doesn't care enough. Because we're more across the facts than they are. That we have the necessary ideas to fix everything. That we're the ones who need to be in charge. That when we call someone a Nazi, a sexist, or a bigot, it's not an opinion. It's a fact. That when we call someone out, or worse, try to ruin their career, they deserve it. And he minces no words here. Pete Ross says that is an astounding level of arrogance. But he says the biggest problem with outrage, however, is that it's been weaponized. Outrage sells like crazy because it's a strong emotion and strong emotions force people into action. That's why political parties, instead of coming together to find solutions, whip their supporters into a frenzy of anger against the other side. Corporations are now getting in on the action too. They'll weaponize your outrage to sell their products, such as Gillette with their ill-fated ad campaign and Nike using Colin Kaepernick to bring socially conscious consumers to their brand. By the way, Nike sales increased 31% after that ad was released and caused a $6 billion brand increase. And so Pete Ross asks, you think they put that cash in uh, that, that ad out there rather to take a social stand? No, they used, they used your outrage to cash in and they cashed in big time. But he says the mainstream media is by far the worst culprit, however, because without your attention, they don't have a business model. They have to make you keep clicking and tuning in. Otherwise, their advertising dollars dry up. That's why everything is sensationalized. And it's no longer about reporting facts. A headline that makes you emotional causes you to click. The article gets you pissed off, which sends you to the comments section to argue with the people. The topic trends on social media, which you're, of course, taking part in. Rinse. Repeat. 
Now, he says, rather than get on my high horse and tell you that you're being played for a fool and you should stop participating, he says, I'm going to take a different approach. If you're one of those people who's constantly scrolling the news and social media, always getting angry at the latest thing you see, or even worse, getting angry on behalf of other people, he says, I've got a really important question. How's it working out for you? He says, I honestly want to know, has constantly reading, liking, retweeting, and commenting your outrage made your life any better? What's it actually doing for you? Has it helped you earn more at work, be better with your family, made you more fulfilled? Has it accomplished anything for you whatsoever? He says, my guess is that it's just made you more pissed off and angry. And why shouldn't it? Spending all of your time getting angry about things isn't going to make you calm and peaceful. It's just going to result in more anger. If all you ever want to look for is the bad parts of life, he asks, how in the hell are you ever going to be happy? Now, Pete Ross says, one of the best things I ever did a couple of years ago was to disconnect myself from the news, from Twitter, Facebook, and to click the see, and to click rather the see fewer stories like this button on Medium for all the articles that were just trying to stir up everybody's emotions and tick them off. And he says, you wouldn't believe how much more relaxed about life you become. It's one thing to see something wrong in the world and work to change it. But what's the point of getting outraged over things you can't change or have extremely limited influence over? You can probably see why I like what this guy is saying. He says, here's a better idea. Use that time and energy to actively better your life and the lives of those around you. We all have a sphere of influence in our lives where the actions we take and the words we speak actually can change things, where we can be an example for those closest to us. And if we interact and speak with the people in our immediate circle in a way that makes them feel happy, valued, and important, that hopefully encourages them to make others feel the same, that's a powerful force for good. Now, he says, if you don't do that, and instead decide that you want to keep being outraged by everything, then he warns your anger is going to consume you. You'll find that the only people that want to be around you are fellow activists and outrage addicts. Oh, is that ever true? The rest of us don't want to constantly be talking about what's making you angry right now just because you think it's the biggest deal in the world. The average person has more than enough going on in their life that they don't need that added to it. What do you think? You like us so far? Again, there's a link to it at the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back just the other side of this break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I'm sharing this this article on medium.com. Your addiction to outrage is ruining your life. And I really don't know that many people who are, you know, just running their lives on pure white-hot rage. But uh, let's say there are, there are definitely more than a few. There, I have friends on Facebook, and these are people I love dearly, so please don't think that I'm criticizing them and trying to put them down. But I know people who simply run from one outrage to the next. And I know they're doing it because they they sincerely care about the things over which they're outraged, but they don't know what else to do. They're not sure what else they can do. So at least if I can get on social media and I can express how thoroughly upset I am, 
you know, somehow that's going to help raise awareness. And who knows? I mean, there, there may be a point to it. But what does it really accomplish? How does it really add value to your life? And if you've never asked yourself that question, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with just contemplating. Is this really making my life better in any measurable way? And for most of us, the answer is going to be no. It took me a long time to learn this. I mean, you've got to understand, if you're, if you're not a long-time listener, you, you wouldn't recognize, but uh, throwing red meat, that was my bread and butter for a long time. And I can attest, you can build a large, loyal audience simply by giving them demons to wrestle giving them a reason to be outraged, pointing them in this direction. That's who you should be angry at. This is what you should be upset about. Anybody who doesn't agree, well, they're stupid. Now, of course, we try to do it with humor, but, but it's still the same thing. It's getting people all ginned up about something rather than focusing on what can be done. Which it turns out in the grand scheme of things, there's a lot of stuff that's out of our control. It doesn't mean that we're totally helpless. It just means... Venting over it may not be as helpful as we think it may be. Pete Ross says, in other words, the world may not be improving fast enough for you, but it is improving pretty much every day. He goes, it's important to remember there are more injustices than you can shake a stick at, but neither you nor anyone is going to save the world tomorrow single-handedly. So when you're angry, that martyr complex is only hurting you. He says, I guarantee that sort of mentality is bleeding into your outside life and making you miserable. That's where he says, don't forget, right now the world, despite all its problems, nastiness and tragedy, is still far better than it was 100 years ago. And the world 100 years ago was better than it was 100 years before that. And this is true. This is a matter of perspective. You want to talk about how many people in the world are, um, are seeing their situation improve. In other words, living with less hunger, less poverty. And the answer will surprise you because it's an astonishing leap forward in terms of economically people are doing so much better now spiritually and culturally you betcha there are some challenges but the point is many things are better and if you're only focusing on the negative that's all you're going to see you're going to find what you seek so he says here's a free piece of advice get off the screen go outside spend some time in the sun Spend some time with friends. Talk about things that make you happy. Hell, he says, go and do some things that make you happy. You've got to balance things out. It's a far more satisfying existence than spending all your time staring at a screen, fighting with people, and then getting worked up over problems that are probably far less urgent than they seem on social media. He says, the point I want to end on is probably the most important here. Your anger doesn't make you right. Just because you're more angry than other people about any particular subject, it doesn't make your opinion more valid and theirs less so. It doesn't mean that you're a righteous warrior and they're a piece of crap because their emotions or opinion aren't on the same level as yours. I know, that's kind of some tough love. And and it may feel like, hey, did I just kind of get verbally backhanded across the face? Yeah, maybe a little bit. But I think it's a message worth considering. And again, it starts with the question, what, what is this actually doing? How is this working out for me? Is this anger delivering something other than that sense of that inflated sense of superiority and self-importance? Or is it actually moving the needle in a positive direction? Okay, that's a call you're going to have to make. But again, I think that's a very productive question to be asking. You can look for the article in the links at the show notes for March 22nd at the Brian Hyde Show. Com. All right, so it's it's been 18 years since the Iraq invasion. 
And I, I don't want to wallow in, oh, and it was you know the worst time of my life. I will tell you, for for someone who was uh, very, I very proudly counted myself as a conservative. Yes, I am a conservative talk show host, and I embrace conservative principles. But that was for me the uh, coming uh, of age moment where I realized maybe I'm not really a conservative because all my conservative friends were on board, and yeah, I'm, I mean the pressure was intense. I had people who would stop by my desk, let alone the callers on the air, but I had people, co-workers, who'd come by every day to argue with me about why I needed to get on board and start waving the flag and cheering because we were going to go kick Saddam Hussein's butt. I'm, you know, I couldn't do it. I, my conscience said, you can't do this, and it was, it was the first time in my life I had to stand against the crowd. And, and unfortunately, in this case, the crowd was my listeners, People I'd been spending years, you know, building rapport with and trying to earn their trust. And they were like, what the hell is wrong with you? It was a really uncomfortable time. Well, since that invasion of Iraq, I think it's become pretty clear to, to those who were paying attention that it really wasn't necessary. It was, it was uh, extremely costly in terms of money, in terms of lives. And I'm not just talking American lives. I'm talking Iraqi lives as well. And we're seeing similar... Uh, world policemen, we're going to go out there and nightstick the troublemakers attitudes creeping in under the new administration. It's crazy, but it's true. Caitlin Johnstone, who uh, writes from Australia, makes the comment that, uh, you know, it's been 18 years since the Iraq invasion. She says, I'm still not done raging about it. Nobody should be. Now, she says the reason it's so important to stay enraged about Iraq is because it's never been addressed or rectified in any real way whatsoever. All the corporate mechanisms which led to the invasion are still in place, and its consequences remain. It isn't something that just happened in the past. The Iraq invasion feels kind of like if your dad had stood up at the dinner table, cut off your sister's head in front of everyone, and then just went right back to eating and never suffered any consequences, and everyone just kind of forgot about it and carried on like, uh, well, it never happened. The U.S. centralized empire, she said, is full of willful amnesiacs pretending they don't remember Iraq because it's currently politically convenient. And she says, we must not let them do this. No institutional changes were made to ensure that the evils of the Iraq invasion wouldn't be repeated. It's one of those big, glaring problems people just decided to pretend is resolved. And there's this weird, implicit default assumption among the political and media class that the U.S. government agencies have earned back the trust they lost with Iraq, despite their having made no changes whatsoever to prevent another Iraq-like horror from happening, or even so much as apologizing. The reason nobody responsible for the Iraq invasion suffered any consequences for the great evil they inflicted upon the world is because the Western Empire had no intention of changing and has every intention of repeating such, such evils. No changes were made after the Iraq invasion to keep the U.S. government from deceiving Americans into war. No new law changes were made. No policies changed. No one was even fired. And indeed, the government did deceive Americans into war again. The Libya and Syria interventions were both based on lies. Her point being, it's happened since, and it will happen again, unless the war machine is stopped. She says, don't take life advice from people who are miserable. Don't take career advice from people whose careers aren't where you want to be. And don't take creative advice from people who don't create things. 
And then she says, don't take foreign policy advice from people who supported the Iraq invasion. Pretty crazy stuff, huh? But I think she's absolutely right. It's a big deal. She says, the way I see it, we've got two options. She says, we can find a way to drastically change the way we think and function as a species, or we can pray that the world will be saved by the same ruling elites who destroyed Iraq while making the poor poorer for the benefit of the extremely wealthy. I'll have a link to her article in the show notes. Strongly advise you check it out for yourself. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Yes, I understand the irony. In the first segment, I share an article about how Our addiction to outrage is overtaking our society. And then I share with you an article from Caitlin Johnston. We should still be outraged about Iraq. Okay, I'm trusting you to find the balance. (laughs) I do think it's important, though, that uh, that we... We question the narrative, and that's what she's calling on. So she's she obviously carries a little bit stronger tone than I do, but I think she has some very valid points on the Iraq invasion and how the people in power... You know, if, if there's anything that we draw from that, it's that you should not be putting your faith in the sociopathic politicians. And by the way, this is Republicans and Democrats alike. This is not just one party or the other. But they are truly sociopathic. And if you haven't seen that play out in, in the events of the last year or so, you know, I don't know what else to tell you other than, you know, it's, it's, really, it's time to pay attention. Maybe you've noticed there's a full court press on right this moment to eliminate so much of what remains of our freedoms. And maybe you wonder, why aren't people more up in arms about it? Why aren't they willing to do something about it? Well, there is an excellent essay from Alan Stevo, and it's titled, Freedom Isn't Free, Freedom Isn't Cheap, Freedom Isn't Easy. It comes at great sacrifice, and few want to hear that. Now, Alan Stevo has caught my attention because he has been po- probably the most principled um, unmasker. Notice I didn't say anti-masker. He's just, he's, he is not for these mask mandates and has had really solid information on ways to resist those who would force them on you. And he received an email from someone who reads his columns regularly at lourockwell.com. This person talked about, uh, hey, I love your stuff. Uh, I haven't worn a face mask yet. This person talked about being thrown out of his daughter's soccer game, physically threatened by the athletic director and refused entrance to all others in the city, all other schools, I assume that is, and surrounding counties. In fact, he says, I went to war with the school system over mandated masks in empty stadiums in open air. Their response was to send several police to games where I would be. He says, I had a doctor friend write me a note, so they harassed the doctor with multiple phone calls to his employer, then refused the note because it wasn't printed on company letterhead. And he says, I couldn't fix it because the doctor wouldn't take my calls anymore. Gee, I wonder why. Cancel culture had been engaged. He says, my regular doctor wouldn't write a note, so um, she suggested maybe see a psychiatrist about it. But I still refused to wear the mask, so I had to watch my daughter's games from outside the fences like a leper. No, more like Ammon Bundy watching his kid play football outside in open air. 
but he did wear, this writer says, I did win one battle. My daughter didn't have to wear the mask. I forced the school system to admit they could not force her to wear it while on the while outside. And then I shared this with the coaches, but they were too scared to encourage others to claim their rights. My daughter was every game the only player not to wear a mask. She's 15 and has more guts than 99% of the men in this country. Anyway, this person just says, I'm just so grateful for everything you do. I appreciate people like you who see the truth and are still fighting. But that's, uh, he says, thank you is what I want to say. Thank you from one freedom lover to another. And Alan Siebel says, what an amazing email to receive. Thank you so much. Your child may like a parent being brave or be uncomfortable about it. But he says, um, your daughter obviously likes it. He says, this sentence really warmed my heart. She's 15 and has more guts than 99% of the men in this country. And Alan Stevo says, how truly wonderful that you have fought the fight to keep her maskless on the field. That's a victory she will be able to proudly speak of her whole life among the free people. Maybe that number's a big one. Maybe it isn't. But he says, whatever it takes. This person, is, as it mentions in their email, I'm just so tired of fighting. I'm just so tired. And Alan Stevo says, whatever it takes, I need you not to be tired. I need you to keep being your wonderful free self. And if you've never read the essay, Isaiah's Job, or haven't read it lately, I'd I'd like to ask you to give it a read. It's hard to know how your virtuous behavior ripples out into the world, but I have no doubt it does. You make the world around you far more free, even if no one ever acknowledges it. And that's the place where I would like to jump into his essay. And this is where I would ask you to pay attention. Because we all tend to think of ourselves, or at least I think sometimes we hide behind false modesty so we don't have to do uncomfortable things. Well, I'm just one little person. There's not much I could do. No. Your virtuous behavior has ripples that you do not see. And I do, uh, by the way, recommend that essay by Albert Nock, Isaiah's Job, is brilliant. I first read it a few years ago, and it absolutely uh, was life-changing for me. And I would encourage you, maybe take a look at it too. Here's what Alan Stevo says. He says, there are few people who will upend their lives over principle. Freedom isn't free. Freedom isn't cheap. Freedom isn't easy. It comes at great sacrifice. And so few want to hear that. He says, some people whine about how they wish they could live more free. Others just live more free. Some people talk about one day when they are rich, then they will really have an impact on the world in the name of freedom hardly exercising those muscles along the way. Others just live more free. Some people say, well, I'll run for office for the next eight years, and when they ultimately win, then they'll make the world more free. He says that's a great idea. In the meantime, others just live more free. Nothing about that need interfere with future plans. Some may even find living a more free life is a benefit to future plans. So he says now's the time to to live the most free life that you can. There's almost no other way than that to make the world more free. You lead others to freedom by modeling leadership. But most importantly, you ensure your own freedom by living life free and asking no permission of any man to do so. I'm going to pause here for just a moment and kind of let that last thing sink in. You ensure your own freedom by living life free and asking no permission of any man to do so. You would think that would be a pretty easy sell, right? Shouldn't that be, you know, he's just, you know, self-evident to people? Well, of course, a free person doesn't ask for permission to be free. Look around you, though. Every person you see 
who is donning a face mask, not because they're required to do so, but just because they're not sure if I can or if I can't. They're choosing to to wait for permission to stop wearing the mask, to stop, you know, practicing this social distancing or whatever. The point is, you've got to be willing to make your own feet move. You've got to make those decisions. And here's where he gets into some things that are going to make a few people uncomfortable, but I think we need to face it anyway, so let's go. Ready? Hold my hand. We're going to jump right in. The cost of freedom is unceasing vigilance. Alan Stevo says, freedom always wants to know, what have you done for me lately? Freedom always wants to know, what have you done for yourself lately? Freedom wants to know how you've expanded freedom in the lives of those entrusted to you. What have you done for your family and your tribe lately? The successes of last week, last month, or last decade don't mean much this week, and they haven't earned you rest. In fact, your commitment to live life as a free man is the same as a commitment to be unceasingly vigilant. There's no need to wait for anyone else or to convince anyone else in order for you to live a more free life at this very moment. Some people say, well, after the kids grow up, then I'll be more free. That's a great idea to live even more free after the kids grow up. But the kids are no excuse not to live a free life now. In the meantime, others are modeling the freest behavior possible for their kids. Behavior their kids can intimately see and feel the price of. Behavior that can hardly be learned any other way than by being modeled by a loved one. He says, as a child, I intimately saw the cost of doing the right thing alongside its pain and pleasure. I wasn't protected from it, but allowed to experience it. Many models have existed my whole life to this day, encouraging me to accept the pain and to revel in the pleasure of doing the right thing. Now, I can seek those models out or I can try to avoid them. He says, I seek them out, and to my great benefit, they sometimes seek me out. What a favor you do for your child if you let them know from a young age the pain and pleasure of doing the right thing and living a more free life. If you normalize the pain and friction of freedom for your child, you will not raise a snowflake unable to stand to withstand that normal and natural pain and friction required to make life more free. So he says, don't hide such a thing. Don't make it look easy. Make it look normal. It can be as easy and natural as blinking or breathing, and it's often exactly that easy and natural to a man used to living a free life. Just as the success of, a, of the child rather of a successful businessman knows the pain of risk is a natural part of success. Just as the child of a successful real estate developer knows the pain of borrowing is a natural part of success. Alan Stevo says, let your child see that to a free man, the pain of defending his freedom is a natural part of success. That is the cost of doing business. Now, I'm going to tell you that uh, there, there are some pitfalls to this. And you may find yourself, uh, you know, crosswise with your spouse, you know, in, in the, the proce- process of modeling how to live a more free life. So it's incumbent on us to be diplomatic, to be humble, and to be flexible. But I can also tell you from firsthand experience, it does have impact on your kids, more so than you would think. So it's worth whatever discomfort or effort may be involved. Got to take a break. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an article by Alan Stevo. You will find a link to it in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I won't have time to share all of it with you today, but I will tell you this is some of the best information I have seen. For anyone who is, is concerned about to what is happening to my freedoms, what can I do about it, I think Alan Stevo has some marvelous answers here. And they may be different than what others would say. I mean, I'm sorry. There are a lot of people stuck in this rut of, well, we just organize ourselves more politically and we vote harder and we vote better. This is how it's all going to change. And that's fine within the political realm. But I'm asking you to consider that there's an awful lot of life beyond politics that still matters. In fact, some might make the, the case it matters even more than politics itself. But Alan Stevo says, if you're waiting to collect on your birthright of freedom, that's the surest way to lose it. Some people say, well, I'm going to work on, you know, freedom after I retire. I'll be more free. And it's a great idea to be more free after retirement. But he says other people just build a more free life for themselves right now. To wait on another day to procrastinate on freedom for any reason is a certain indicator that you don't really want the freedom you speak of. And it's often an indicator as well that you will not have that freedom you speak of. Some people have an imaginary line in the sand that is always in retreat. They say, once it's crossed, that's it. The oppressor won't be able to tolerate the response. They say that once they cross that distant line, they'll be sorry. And unsurprisingly, the tyrant reaches that line and then pushes far beyond it. A new boundary by that time has been made. And this is, this is going to sting, so I'm just going to warn you. Squishy, flexible, conflict-hesitant, consensus-seeking society hates your immovable boundaries. But your immovable boundaries are one of your greatest assets. Alan Stevo says the real boundary in such a person forever in retreat is not based on their values, but on the proximity to conflict. They always set their boundaries a safe distance away from conflict. This is how cowardice sets a boundary. It's not a person of values who behaves in such a way, but a person of preference. And a person of preference prefers to avoid conflict rather than to defend their values and defend their boundaries. It's good to have boundaries that you won't allow to be crossed, but never in retreat and never a distance away. Let the boundaries be boundaries that are pertinent to this moment in time. If you have no boundaries pertinent to this moment in time, you are saying to yourself and to the world, everything's fine here, there's no oppression. And if your boundaries are in constant retreat, you have no boundary. Some people wait for others to join them and say, once X, Y, and Z happens, we will be more free. Well, having grand plans is wonderful. Magnifying your influence in the world is wonderful. There's nothing to wait for. And he also warns about the dangerous impact of socializing and outsourcing the freedom isn't free concept. Some people who say it isn't free refuse to pay the price for their own freedom. They socialize risk and they bask in the glory of that amorphous idea. Blood and treasure is sent abroad, but it's seldom their blood. And the treasure comes from the common treasury, not from their pocket accompanied by an itemized receipt. And that treasury and blood suffers from the tragedy of the commons. So few fight for freedom when we engage in the moral hazard of socializing freedom as a common good. It's quickly overgrazed and abused. Like any common, people tend to take it in substantial, take from it rather in substantial quantities according to their preference and tend to give to it in miserly quantities according to their preference. Freedom is more akin to private property. It is homesteaded. 
It is a resource that becomes harvestable because of your wise application of your labor. He says, how I dislike the use of the phrase freedom isn't free to express freedom isn't free and it's some other guy's job to pay for my freedom with his money and with his blood. So few willing to wear the face masks are any better. He says they expect others to do the work for them, pass laws and policies to unmask them as they obediently go through the day wearing the mask, normalizing its horror. We can't treat our individual freedom as common property, then be surprised that it grows dilapidated the way any common property does. And then he brings up prayer, and I think this is very apropos. Some people will have priests say Mass for them and have nuns pray for them. Those are beautiful traditions. They may ask friends to pray. There is power in prayer. But he says these traditions aren't meant to replace you getting on your knees and doing the hard and edifying work on yourself that comes through prayer. By the way, he's absolutely right about this. He talks about child-rearing. Why is that some other guy's job? How come your marriage is some other guy's job? How come defending freedom is some other guy's job? His point is you are the only one responsible for you. And he points to the email that he received and says, that man makes no excuses for why he will not have his freedom. The rest of the world can go work itself into a crazy tizzy if it wants. That man will be fine living a free life right alongside his family. Alan Stevo says it would be nice if the rest of the world stopped wearing face masks. It would be nice if the rest of the world weren't so eager about being the recipient of the experimental and dangerous COVID shot. It'd be nice if the rest of the world weren't in lockdown. It would be nice if so many pastors weren't so cowardly. It would be nice if the rest of the world stopped living in fear. But you know what? At the end of the day, it's not about them. Welcome men and women into your home to pray on a Sunday, he says. Keep your business open. Push back when people push against you. Honesty dictates such a behavior. Reject that COVID shot. Never wear the face mask. These are all actions you can take. He says, we don't yet live in a totalitarian state because you can do all those things as long as you're willing to pay a price for your freedom. And the only way that we prevent that totalitarian state from forming in our lives is exactly that way. Be willing to pay a daily price for freedom. It's not about face masks. It's about having boundaries. It's not about face masks. It's about living life free. It's not about face masks. It's about building the relationships, building the muscles, building the trust among those around you, those who you want to be around and who honor you. And by doing the same, by getting rid of people you don't want to be around. It's about being honest. It's about communicating your most important values, being clear about who you are. Some will like that, and some won't, but that's okay. It was never about them. It was always about you. Stephen Baskerville writes, He who is afraid to anger or offend is not yet a man. And so Alan Stevo says, Please vow to never wear that face mask again. Please vow to live as principled and free of a life as you possibly can, even at great cost, especially at great cost. He says, it is, after all, the cost of freedom that makes it so rare. Let each of us pursue this most precious item with our most earnest efforts. Let us not leave it to the fate of a common good. Let us not model such moral rot for those who watch us, hungry for a leader. You, dear reader, are that leader. All that's needed is for you to take that next step. I don't know if you felt that like I did, but that felt like a that felt like a kick right in the seat of my pants, <laughs> telling me, yeah, you got you to gotta be the one to stand up. 
and don't wait for permission to do so. As always, I will have a link to this marvelous article in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. One quick thing I'm going to mention in the couple moments that I have left here. Um, I don't know if you follow Project Veritas, but uh, there's been very little coverage in the mainstream media, but the conservative group Project Veritas won a major victory against the New York Times this past week in a defamation case with potentially wide reach. In a 16-page decision, New York Supreme Court Justice Charles Wood ruled against the newspaper's motion to dismiss and found that Project Veritas had shown sufficient evidence that the New York Times might have been motivated by actual malice and acted with reckless disregard in several articles written by Maggie Astor and Tiffany Sue. The decision will allow the project access to discovery, which can be extremely difficult for the news organization. And by the way, this uh, follows another significant loss by the New York Times to Sarah Palin last year. Having two such losses for the New York Times in the defamation area is ironic, given its role in establishing the precedent under New York Times v. Sullivan. By the way, I'm getting this from JonathanTurley.org. But, uh, yeah... Here's what I take away from this. I have a link to this article, which, again, is in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. My takeaway is simply this. The New York Times, which, you know, the gray lady, the, the flagship of American journalism, has now twice been caught lying because of partisan things. And so all I'm asking you to consider is, hey, Is it possible that other parts of our our mass media, our heritage media, may likewise be less than truthful or otherwise have been uh, agendized in ways that uh, they're not especially transparent about? And if that's the case, does that not put an onus on us to be a little more discerning in the information that we're seeking and the information that we're gathering? Now, look, I'm not using this as an opportunity to hold myself up as in, therefore, you know, I'm the only source you can trust. Because I sure don't have all the answers either. But I'm glad we have alternatives, and this is one of those alternatives, and there are many others like that, as it should be. And you, my friend, need to become the human truth detector that you were born to become. I can help you with that. This is The Brian Hyde Show.